0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. But before we get to today's scripture, I want to say just a little bit about where we're headed over the next few weeks. Uh, we're entering into a new sermon series. We don't usually kick them off on Labor Day, uh, but we thought that this one was important enough, and we'll make sure we had full time for it to to work through. And I, I want to tell you just a little bit about the inspiration behind this, this series. When I was a little kid, uh, my dad worked for a fishing magazine. Some of y'all know that. And he used to get these books in the mail. They wouldn't have a cover on them because... Uh, they were books that were going to be coming out. They were about the outdoors. They'd be from various outdoor writers, and, and folks would send them to Dad in hopes that his magazine would cover them, give them a nice little blurb or whatever. And sometimes Dad would pass those books on to me. And I especially loved the humor books. you know. And he'd write the ones that had the funny stories in them. There was one guy in particular, a guy named Pat McManus. He used to have the back page of Outdoor Life magazine. And sometimes dad would hand me his books. I always thought they were real special because they didn't have a cover on it. It felt like I was getting secret preview knowledge. And also I just thought that Pat McManus was stinking hilarious. He had just the best stories. And every so often he would share one of his theories of the world as well. And he had one particular theory that stuck with me from time I was a little kid uh, to this very moment. His theory is called the worry box. And it goes like this. He says, I have this theory that people possess a certain capacity for worry. No more, no less. It's as though every person has a little psychic box that he feels compelled to keep filled with worries. And when one worry disappears from the box, he immediately replaces it with another worry. So the box is always full. If a new crop of worries comes in, the person sorts through the box for all the lesser worries and kicks them out until he has time or room for the new worries. And the lesser worries just lie around on the floor until there's room for them to come back in the box again. And then they're put back in and they're welcomed by the old worries that have been there the whole time who say, hey guys, it's good to have you back. Boy, you should have seen the duds that just left. They had the nerve to call themselves worries. I wonder what your worry box looks like. I don't know this morning if it's big or small. I don't know if it's filled with one really big worry or if you just got a bunch of little ones in there. But even without knowing what your worry box looks like, I, I'm willing to bet it's full today. Somebody here this morning has a a worry box that's been full with the same worry, the same big worry that's been there for months, maybe even years. It might be a very existential, life-threatening or life-changing kind of worry that's all that you can think about. Others of us have a box that is full of a lot smaller worries. And we know that they're smaller, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. Maybe you think back on something that you were terribly worried about six months ago and now you're on the other side of it and you realize that was nothing to really be worried about. You realize you made it through. You're okay. It wasn't that big a deal and somehow that still isn't helping you right here and now with the new ones that you've got that you know will be over real soon but that doesn't change that they are there lingering big or small. Our worries matter to God. They matter so much that in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus devotes an incredible amount of time, a huge portion of that sermon, to the things that worry us most. And if you aren't aware, the Sermon on the Mount, this most famous Sermon of Jesus, it's not a sermon that Jesus preached just once. Most Bible scholars agree that this was something like Jesus' stump speech. <laughs> when he went from town to town to tell people, what is the kingdom of God like? This kingdom that I say is coming near, he preached something like the Sermon on the Mount. That's why in the book of Luke, we see it almost repeated verbatim, except there Luke tells us that Jesus preached it on a plane. Jesus preached this word over and over again. And when Jesus gave his stump speech about what the kingdom of God looks like, the message that he brought with him everywhere he went, he spoke about our worries. It's about a year ago that we were uh doing taking some time away to, to plan out our our sermons and think about our preaching for uh this year and uh i and woods invited some some folks to come and and think and pray with us and it was vanessa rayner who first said that in the sermon on mount there are five worries that we all know and she came up with the nice alliteration to help us remember them fashion finance future family and food everybody's had one of those in their worry box at some point Everybody's had all of those in your worry box at some point, And everybody here has one of those po- possibly in your worry box today. So for the next few weeks, we are going to try and get inside the minds of the people who first heard Jesus preaching his stump speech to figure out what their worries were and how it met them where they were and to figure out and discern what that might have for us today. As we have these same worries, though they might look a little bit different than they, than they did back then. Above all though, we want to get inside the mind of Christ, which the book of Philippians tells us we are supposed to do and we can do. If that sounds audacious to you. It's the promise that Paul made to the church in Philippi that we would have within us the same mind that was in Christ. So we might be able to see the worries that, that we think about with the same clarity and same vision that Jesus does. And I know it's a little early for New Year's resolutions, all right? We're a few few months early. But as we work through this series... I want you to think about this. I want you to think about what you could do between now and the end of this year that could actually transform the next year. You know, we often wait until January 1st to say, oh, I want to change this. I want to address this. I want to deal with this in my life. And by then, it feels like we're behind. I wonder what would happen if we spent the rest of this year picking one of these things that worries us, that plagues us, that hangs over us. And we said, all right, we're going to take all the preparation for dealing with it now. So January 1st comes and it's a clean slate. We're starting fresh, we're starting new. Whether it's getting our finances in order or our relationship to, to clothing, to shopping, to consumer goods, whether it's uh, our relationship to the future or something else, what if we took this time between now and the end of the year to get ready to start all over and start anew, turn around in the year to come. I wonder how much richer our lives would be if we learned to accept these things as blessings rather than worries. Because all these things that we'll be talking about, fashion, finance, future, family, food, all these things, they're good things. We're not going to ask you to live your life without food, right? Without family, we're not trying to eliminate these things, but we want them to be blessings rather than worries for us. I wonder what it would take for God to change your relationship to the one that causes you the most worry over the next few months. And I wonder how different your life might be if you took that time, made that preparation. We always say that our goal here at Dauphin Way is to make disciples who make a difference. And I cannot imagine a bigger difference that we could make in the world than if the people of this community said of folks at Dolphin Way, they are the ones who don't carry the same worries that we do. So with that in mind, I invite you to hear from a little bit of Jesus' stump speech from the Sermon on the Mount as we share together in Matthew chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 28. And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. And I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God cares for the clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire will he not much more clothe you you of little faith so do not worry saying what shall we eat what shall we drink what shall we wear for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I bet mean, when you look at today's worry, some of us here are tempted to think that it's the least important one of all. Some of you saw in the bulletin that we're talking about fashion today, about clothing and about dressing and about how we uh, how we uh, appear. And and some of you rolled your eyes. Because you suspect that the only spiritual way to talk about what we wear is to not talk about it at all. Let's just not pay any attention. Let's pretend it doesn't matter But it's funny, isn't it, how the world makes us pay attention, even to the things we otherwise would never think about. I remember the first Easter, my wife Jennifer and I spent uh, and celebrated with our daughter Elsa after she had learned to walk. She was just about two years old. And we showed up to church that Sunday morning, and Elsa was in her Easter dress that her mother had worked so hard to find. It was beautiful, had all these pleats and this lace, and it just looked very eastery. Elsa looked gorgeous, you can imagine. And we walked into to church and she looked beautiful in her little dress, but Jennifer had not spent any time uh, looking for shoes to go with it because Jennifer and I are from Montgomery, Alabama. And if you don't know, there's an old custom in Montgomery. It dates back to this long dead, but very influential doctor to some of the oldest families in town. Uh, he believed that children should be barefoot as much as possible. When Jennifer and I were growing up, the school that we attended did not require us to wear shoes until third grade. All right. This is just how we grew up. If you watch online worship at some of the downtown churches in Montgomery, some of the old churches where generations have been for years and years and years, you'll see children's moments. Kids come streaming down the center aisle and they're wearing these beautiful dresses and no shoes at all. In fact, because of that, uh, even on formal occasions, like graduations and weddings, it is entirely common to see people, especially brides, especially the young women, go across the stage or come down the aisle in front of God and everybody in their bare feet. So we show up at church on Easter Sunday with a two year old in bare feet, and we think nothing of it. Elsa goes toddling down the bare, barefoot down that center aisle of Brantley UMC when one of the dear older ladies of the church pulls Jennifer aside with just horror on her face. She says with utter sincerity, Jennifer, are y'all okay? Is the church taking care of you? Do you need me to buy that precious girl some shoes? Miss Terry was worried about us. And about Elsa precisely because we hadn't worried about shoes that morning. She worried what it meant. And she worried not only for our finances, but for what it said about the church. And what does it mean for them? It's funny how the world invites us to worry about the things that otherwise we wouldn't. And when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, his first hearers had a lot more at stake than just respectability or how they appeared to other people. In the first century, for the overwhelming number of people, the biggest worry they had about their clothes was not about whether or not they were in tune with the latest styles. The biggest worry was about whether they would have any clothing at all. person in the first century, with vanishingly few exceptions, the only exceptions are folks like the nobles, the kings, the very, very elite Average person in the first century would have only owned three items of clothing. They would have had a loincloth and a tunic and a mantle. They'd have had one of each, and that's it. Young and old, male, female, impoverished, middle class, upper middle class, to the extent that there was such a thing. All these folks would have had only these three garments. If you were lucky, you might have had an extra tunic loincloth was there to cover one's middle, and it was under the tunic. So it, pretty much everybody could have one of those without too much trouble. You could make it out of scrap clothing. You, you didn't need anything particularly fine or respectable for it. The tunic was like a big bed sheet. It was folded over and then sewn up the sides with just enough room left at the top for, for armholes. And for men, they would typically have a wider bed sheet so that they had a little bit longer sleeves Uh, The armholes would fall a little bit further down their arm and make a kind of long sleeve. Women typically would have a little bit shorter one. But then the most prized item of all, the most valuable, most prized and the most precarious item of clothing was the one that was called the mantle. Or you might see it sometimes translated as the cloak. A mantle was like a robe. It was sewn from heavier fabric, and for a person who had one, it wasn't just clothing. It was, it was all kinds of things. Your mantle was, uh, was a robe, but it was also, if you were traveling, your backpack. You would wrap the things that you carried with you on the road up in the mantle. And you might carry it over your shoulder or tie it around your back. It was the way to carry some of your most essential belongings. At night, your mantle was your blanket. You slept under it, which was incredibly important in the dry, cold air of the Middle Eastern winters. Mantle was so important that there are even Old Testament laws about it. This is from Exodus 22. It says, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall exact no interest from them. And if you take your neighbor's cloak as collateral... You must restore it before the sun goes down. For it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as a cover. And what else shall that person sleep? And then, and you can almost hear the threatening voice behind this. When your neighbor cries out to me, I will listen. For I am compassionate. So if we are going to recognize and break the power of worries in our own life, we have to recognize what won't work. It won't work to simply deny our worries. Say, ah, that's no big deal. Clothing, who cares about that? Don't worry, be happy does not help the person who's working day and night to replace the one shirt that shields their body from the burning sun and the freezing night. By the way, the thing that made clothing so valuable and so rare in Jesus' day, in the first century, the reason folks had so little of it is because it was incredibly expensive and incredibly labor-intensive to make. So, for instance, most clothes are made in the home, and there's a historian, Brett Devereaux, who did some research on first-century clothing. Creating the basic clothing for an average-sized family of just six people, creating the, just one set of clothing for all six members of an average-sized family would take eight hours of work every day for an entire year. 2,900 hours of work just so that two parents and four kids could have a loincloth, a tunic, and a mantle. Other historians say that about 80% of that 2,900 hours was spent in spinning and taking either the wool from the sheet or the flax from the fields and turning it into a thread. Once it was in thread, it could be woven into a garment pretty easily, but it took a long time and a lot of hours just to spin the thread. Spinning thread may have been the most single, most frequently performed work task in the entire ancient world. It was a year round thing. Whether the crops were in season or out, the people of the family would be spinning, would be preparing. You could not afford not to think about where your next cloak, your next tunic, would be coming from. Because if you lost it, if it was torn, if it was destroyed, you couldn't just go out and buy a new one. And all that is to say that when Jesus says, Consider the lilies, they do not spin any threads, he's not saying, Don't sweat the small stuff. He's talking about one of the most fundamental realities and ever present tasks in the lives of the people who hear him. He's not saying, Clothes don't matter, who cares? Instead, he's recognizing that our most common worries are about the most important things in our lives. And at the same time, when Jesus says elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, if someone sues you and wants to take your shirt, give him your mantle also. He's not saying give that extra jacket that you're tired of to the open door's thrift store. I bet you won't miss it. Instead, he's saying that our freedom, our joy, depends upon having a radically different relationship to the stuff of everyday life, even to the most important things. Think about all the labor that goes into a mantle. And Jesus says, if someone sues you for your shirt, give them your mantle also. One last note about what the people of the first century would have heard when Jesus talked to them about clothing is that he's not talking about stripping away joy or beauty or wonder Please know what Jesus did not say about the lilies of the field. He did not say, who cares what they look like anyway? He did not say, eh, they're drab and nobody minds. No, he says, the lilies are more beautiful than anything in Solomon's court. I don't know why, but for some reason, whenever I've read this passage from from being a little kid, I know it says lilies, and I know that lilies are traditionally white, but for some reason, whenever I hear this passage, I think of, uh, of pansies, uh, those little flowers that we see every spring that come in all kinds of different colors. Just when I hear just talking about the, the richness and the beauty of Solomon's Gord. I just can't help but think of all these different colors. And sure enough, I looked in, in my commentaries on this passage. They said that this word, lilies, it can actually refer to all kinds of wildflowers, irises and anemones and tulips and gladiolus. So when Jesus is inviting us into this changed relationship with our clothing, he is not saying, well, you should want less. He's not saying that you should have less beauty in your life. He's inviting us into a kingdom of abundance, a kingdom of beauty and a kingdom of dignity. In fact, that's one thing historians have found about first century clothing. It was incredibly labor intensive to make, but the one thing that even the poorest farmer could afford was to dye their clothing once it was made. So if you have in mind that in the first century, everybody's wearing like these dull, dusty grays and browns, that's probably not true. We know from first century art and from uh, from uh, from, uh, from, uh, from different archaeology that has discovered the place the stuff were dyed, that probably when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the people in front of him were in all kinds of different colors. Some dyes, like purple, were really expensive, but yellow and green and blue were probably scattered all in front of him. All these people with the one item of clothing that they made and that they had dyed into some some beautiful, beautiful shade. And that beauty is exactly what Jesus celebrated. Think of the lilies of the field and how God has clothed them. Our creativity, our longing for vibrancy and for beauty, that's inherited in us from a creator who made the beauty of the world around us, made the flowers in all their jewel tones. So if Jesus has answered to worry, is not about denying reality. It's not about pretending we don't need these things. And if it's not about giving up our longing for wonder and for beauty in the world, then what hope does he have for those of us who would really like to empty our worry box, who would like to think about some of the fundamentals of our everyday life without having worry? You won't hear it until you read all the way to the end when Jesus says, your heavenly father, knows that you need all these things but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well we will not worry less by wanting less we will worry less by wanting more by wanting the kingdom, by putting it first, by putting it above, by desiring it in a way that goes beyond all our desires for all these other things. Jesus says, put the kingdom first and you'll have all the other stuff that you need. And note that all that you need, not all that you want, not all that you think you need, not all you might've chosen for yourself, but you will have all that you need in order to see the kingdom. See, there's a world of difference in preaching or in praying to God, Lord, give me what I think I need. And in praying to God, Lord, give me what I need in order to know you. There's a world of difference in saying, God, help me impress somebody with how humbly I dress or how differently I dress or how perfectly I dress. There's a world of difference in saying that versus saying, God, help me to see you. Not let others see me. Lord, help me see you everywhere. Help me see you in laughter that surrounds the guy who dresses only in novelty t-shirts. Help me see you in the grace of the folks who seem so effortlessly smooth. Help me see you in the person whose clothing is the least interesting thing about them. Help me see you in the person who is so vulnerable that they can no longer hide their need for the basics of life. Help me see you in all of it. Let me seek your kingdom first before I worry about what others see in me. Let me seek your kingdom first, and I'll find you in more places than I ever guessed. Or as Gerard Manley Hopkins once put it in a poem I love, As kingfishers catch fire, as dragonflies draw flame, Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Acts in God's eyes what in God's eyes he is. For Christ plays in ten thousand places. Lovely in limbs and in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. If you want to worry less, want more. Want to see God in everything, in every one. Fix your attention on seeking his kingdom in the ten thousand places it's going to show up today. And you won't have much room left for worrying about the other stuff. And the God who knows your need will give you everything you need in order to be able to see him. Here's the thing. If you, if you learn to seek God first, to seek him in all the ways that he dresses up and in all the guises that he shows up, I expect you'll find you have all the clothes that you need to do that doesn't mean you won't care any longer but it does mean you won't worry when you've learned in your neighbor that their apparel and their attire is no barrier to seeing god in them you'll see yourself differently too as we were preparing this whole sermon series i called my longtime friend micah some of y'all know micah Is an ordained uh, Methodist pastor. He was at a church here in Mobile, but now he's a a full-time licensed clinical therapist. That's his full-time job these days. And the big thing I wanted him to to know from him was, how can we preach about worry without making our worriers worry that they worry too much? And Mike, had a lot of things to say, and some of them we're going to share over the next few weeks. But the thing that I took away first and that I want to share with you today is this. He said, Dealing with anxiety and with worry begins in the same place for everyone and everybody. Some people will need medications to help them. Some people are going to need practices and specific rituals and behaviors, but everyone has to start by deciding on the story that frames their life. In clinical speak, we call that the cognitive part of cognitive behavioral therapy. What's the story you tell yourself about what your life is for? In scriptural speak, we call it seeking first, the kingdom of heaven, saying that's a story that frames my entire life. Because the stories we tell ourselves reveal the purposes that we are living for. And it's having purpose that fills us with the assurance We need to believe that God will handle the worries along the way. When you find yourself worrying about what you will wear tomorrow, take a moment to reimagine wherever it is that you're going tomorrow. How will you walk in the room? Who will you seek out? How will you see the person who feels unseen? How will you give courage to the person who wants to be unseen, who's afraid of being seen? How will you dignify the person who's so busy making themselves seen? How will you honor them and their desire to be seen without feeding their desperation? How will you seek God's kingdom in each of them? Because you see, it turns out everybody does have a worry box and it will always be full. But if we will allow God to fill it with a purpose, a calling, a quest to find his kingdom wherever it shows up, then the worries God kicks out will find it harder and harder to get back in. And I've seen enough people chase enough purposes to know that in the end, there is only one that can truly fill us. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.